Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is 4 p.m. on a Thursday in San Francisco on a lovely sunny afternoon, sunny summer afternoon on June 8th. And I'm sure a lot of you are thinking, what the hell is that loser doing working? And of course, you'd be completely right. And I have a partner in crime here. He's also working. But my partner, at least my guest on today's show, is also an outspoken critic of our working culture. Uh, he just had a piece in The Atlantic, an excellent piece, The Moral Case for Working Less. Um, he is uh, very critical of the idea of treating our job or our work as a calling. He had a, an interesting New York Times op-ed out uh, last week, and he has a new book, a big uh, hit, The Good Enough Job, Reclaiming Life from Work, uh, Simone Stoltzoff, otherwise known as Simo. He lives up down the road from me or up the road from me in San Francisco. And Simo, what the hell are you doing working on a Thursday afternoon with me? We're both a couple of losers, aren't we? Yeah, I mean, you tell me, Andrew. You're the one who invited me on. That's all my fault, as always. <laughs> so in all seriousness, though, um, are you against work or jobs? I mean, it's what we're doing. I do this for fun, although I guess I'm paid for it. They're about 10 cents an hour. Uh, you're clearly passionate about what you're doing. Is this a job or work? And are, is all work a job, or, or do you distinguish between the two? Yeah, it's a it's a good question. And I think you know, if you look at just the title of my book, "The Good Enough Job: Reclaiming Life from Work," you might think it's the slacker manifesto. But in actuality, I'm not against work. You know, I think I have some critiques of work culture here in the United States, but work is an important part of our lives. It's understandably where we spend the majority of our hours. And so what we do with those hours matter. But what I caution against is treating work as the center around which the rest of our life orbits to the extent that we have to push the rest of our life into the margins. Why is that happening, Simo? Is, 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 are there cultural, economic reasons, political reasons why some people at least seem to treat their job as a calling, as the defining quality of who they are? Yeah, I think there's many different ways to slice it. But the one that I really focus on in the book is with the decline of other sources of identity and meaning in Americans' lives, particularly things like organized religion or neighborhood and community groups, work for many Americans has come to fill the void. People look to work not just for a paycheck, but also for a community, a sense of purpose, a reason for being. And as I argue in the book, that's not always a burden that our jobs are designed to bear. We had a UC Berkeley sociologist on the show last year who argued that big tech companies were becoming a substitute for religion. Uh, now, I don't suppose you celebrate that. I certainly don't. But is that the fault of big tech companies or is it the fault of a a cultural or spiritual vacuum in our society, which allow big tech companies to step into that hole? 
I think it's a bit of both. You know, you could think about the the top down approach where some of these companies in their rhetoric say things like come here and change the world or come here and do the best work of your life. And then through the amenities and benefits they provide, they make it very easy for work to become all consuming when they offer, say, free dinners on campus that lure employees to stay late or the office becomes your go-to gym or your go-to bar as well. But I also think the demand is coming from workers as well. You know, from the bottom up, we have workers looking to work to self-actualize, to find that vocational soulmate that can help them be the fullest version of who they are. And as many people found out during the pandemic, when we have those sky-high expectations, there's a lot of room to be disappointed. Is tech... Uh, the heart of the problem. I've had Dave Edgars on the show a couple of times, another local writer. Um, he's very critical of big tech companies. His last two books have been satires of them. The last one was The Every. Uh, you talk about these big tech companies as gyms, as creches. There are also laundrettes there. Hmm. They're, they're claiming to help us, but of course what they're really doing is taking us over in the same way, I guess, as big tech is taking over the world. Yeah, I mean, I think there are a few different ways to look at it. For one, these companies, they're exporting their cultures around the world as well. So what may have started in Silicon Valley with the sprawling campuses of the tech giants here are now being adopted by other industries and other organizations around the world. I think it's important for workers to be clear-headed that there are two sides of the cushy office perks. On one hand, yes, you might be able to do your laundry or be able to eat dinner on these campuses, but you know these benefits, quote unquote, wouldn't be offered unless the companies were set to gain as well. And you see, you know, when you have a life that you're spending 7 p.m. on a Thursday night at the office, who the real beneficiary. And it's certainly not us. You argue that um, we shouldn't call our jobs a calling. Are you against the idea of a calling itself, which is, of course, a, a sociological concept, which was certainly pioneered in many ways by uh, Max Weber? Can we have callings? They simply have to be outside the office? Yeah, you know, I mean, if you think about the origin of the, the term, it really comes from this Calvinist idea that there are certain people that are predestined to heaven, that, you know, we are all called the cobbler to his studio, you know, the, the painter to his canvas, and our ability to work hard is an outward sign of our further path onto the path of heaven. And if you think about that being transposed onto the workplace, you know, as Weber argues in the Protestant work ethic and spirit of capitalism, you see this idea of a, a religious foundation that argues about hard work being your sign that you're going to heaven and an economic foundation that thinks growth is a not just a, a metric, but a, a moral good as being the perfect storm to lead to a culture of, of work centricity and, and workism as, as I dub it in the book, a reference to, to the journalist, Derek Thompson. You know, and I think the, the, the risk of this is when your calling or when your passion for what you do 
becomes a stand-in for job security or workplace protections or fair pay. Certainly employers can take advantage of their workers' passion for what they do to expect them to go above and beyond and to work for less than they deserve. A couple of years ago, we had another journalist on the show with another interesting controversial book, Sarah Jaffe. Work won't love you back. How devotion to our jobs keeps us exploited, exhausted and alone. She seems to be coming more from the left than your book. Uh, Is there a politics to your argument? Is this a form of exploitation of corporations over individuals? I wouldn't say that my bent is as political as Sarah's. You know, a lot of my work is built on the foundation that thinkers and writers like Sarah have set. Um, Her book really focuses on class solidarity and workers being able to see what they do as labor, working in solidarity with workers across the economy. Whereas my book really focuses on a particular subset of Americans, that is to say, college-educated, white-collar, knowledge workers. And so, you know, although we're talking about similar topics and and workism is very much in the air that we breathe, there are different problems that plague low earners to high earners in this country. For a lot of hourly and service workers, they're having to work more hours just to get by with stagnant wages and the lack of protections that a lot of the lowest paid Americans earn. Whereas the problem that's plaguing what I would call quote unquote privileged workers or people who have the option to choose what they do is a separate issue. It's an issue of looking to work for self-actualization and trying to find the perfect job, even though that is not necessarily something our jobs can deliver. Simo, this show, Keenan, goes out on LitHub too, a very literary audience. And when we think about callings, I sometimes get the sense from the editorial flavor of, uh, of, of LitHub and of some of the people who uh, I've talked to who, who, who enjoy the platform, that they treat writing and books and the art of creation as a calling. Is that okay in in your view? Uh, I I mean, can one think of being an artist in in those Weberian terms? Uh, Is that acceptable for you as long as we're not somehow being paid for it? I mean, it's a romantic notion, a classically romantic notion. Yeah, I don't think it's necessarily a problem to think of your work as a calling or to love what you do or to align your work with your interests or your passions. I think it becomes risky, though, when it becomes the sole source of meaning or the sole source of identity in your life. As so many people have found out in the pandemic, if your love and your identity are one and the same with how you get paid for work, and your work gets taken away from you, often by no fault of your own, then you can be hung out to dry. And so I think it's okay to think of your work as a calling or to be extremely passionate about what you do, as long as you're also clear-headed about the fact that a job is fundamentally an economic contract. of your time and your labor for a paycheck. Certainly it can be much more than that, But the more clear-headed about that foundational role that work plays in our life, the better. As you say, um, 
Love doesn't pay the bills. Your work is not your calling. The rhetoric that a job is a passion obfuscates reality. It is an economic contract. There's something, and, and I'm trying to unpick your argument, uh, Sima, because I'm suspicious of it. I'm not suspicious of you, but I'm suspicious of the fact that there's something very depressing about the argument you make. It resonates. Your book is doing very well. It clearly... We're clearly ready for that kind of message. But aren't we going backwards rather than forwards? Aren't we going back to a corporate culture where that was always taken for granted, that everyone should have a good enough job back to the 1950s where men would show up with their newspapers and their cars and eat dinners with their wives and their kids? And then we have the 60s and the life of meaning and creativity and all the rest of it. And what you're really suggesting is we simply should go back to the corporate culture of the 1960s. We should all become men and perhaps women in in gray suits. Hmm. Yeah, I think, you know, the pendulum swings both ways. And in many ways, the work of Sarah and myself is a pushback against the movements of the early aughts and the 2010s, where we had this whole hustle culture and girl bossing and idea that work is the way in which you can change the world. You know, I think I came into the reporting process with maybe more of a hot take of thinking, you know, work is bad, we do it too much, it has become too central to our society. And yet on the other side of three years of reporting and talking to countless workers across the economy, I think it's tempered into something a bit more mild, which is to say that how we spend our working hours matter. You know, the pursuit of meaningful work is not something that is inherently problematic. And yet we have to balance that with the understanding that what we do is not the same as who we are, to not let what we do for work subsume our identity and completion. Simo, is there a, a generational quality to this? You're younger than I am. My wife is a, a, a manager or director, VP at a large tech company. She's continually reporting to me about the different attitudes of the people who work for her. They're more demanding. They're more finicky. They're more, uh, they're more sensitive. Is the problem that your generation has been promised too much, both in cultural terms and perhaps particularly because they've spent hundreds of thousands of dollars getting a really fancy education, which ultimately is pretty useless. I do think there is a generational component to it. I'm, I'm reminded of the quote that my grandfather was in the military so that my father could be an engineer so that I could be a poet. I think many millennials, especially those who grew up with a certain level of privilege, inherited certain scripts about following their passions and doing what they love, which created these expectations that work can always be a reflection of your passion, work can always be a dream, or it can always be perfect. And, you know, in many ways, my book, you know, The Good Enough Job is a direct foil to the idea of a dream job. It's an allusion to Donald Winnicott, a pediatrician and psychologist from the mid 20th century who came up with this theory called the good enough parent or more specifically, the good enough mother. And what Winnicott observed was that there was this growing idolization of parenting, specifically in England in the mid 20th century, as I mentioned, where parents were looking to be the perfect parent. 
They wanted to shield their kid from experiencing any sort of negative emotion or harm. And then when the kid inevitably felt frustrated or sad or angry, the parent took it extremely personally. They thought it was a reflection of their own shortcomings. So as an alternative, Winnicott proposed the idea of the good enough parent, which he thought would benefit both the child and the parent because the child would learn how to self-soothe, to take care of some of their own problems, and the parent wouldn't lose themselves in their children's emotions. So in many ways, you know, my book is targeted towards people who believe that work can be perfect, that work should be devoid of tedium or should never really, be mundane. I, I mean, it, Simo, is, is there a bit of a straw man here? Do people really believe that in their heart of hearts? The kids come out of college and listen to that graduation speech by somebody who's trying to be Steve Jobs, who's promising passion and an uncompromising commitment to making the world a better place. Are kids really that stupid? Do they believe that? Oh, I certainly was. You know, I came out of college. I was you a, believe that? I was a, a poetry major with great ideals of being able to find a job that perfectly aligned. That was an expression of my unique personality. And I spent my early 20s looking for that. I worked in four or five different industries in almost as many years trying to find the perfect job. And it wasn't until I went through all of that process that I realized, you know, maybe I was the constant. Maybe it was my expectations about what work can deliver that led to all of this dissonance inside of me. And so I do think the youngest generation that's entering the workforce, Gen Z, has a very different approach to work. But I think, you know, on that end of the spectrum, they're in for a rude awakening as well. You know, there's a lot of cultural cachet right now in being anti-work or anti-capitalist. And yet we still live in a material world. You can be anti-capitalist, but you still have to pay rent. And so I argue for more of a middle path, this sort of nuanced balance between extreme workism on one end and the nihilism that jobs and work is a necessary evil on the other end, and advocate for trying to think about ways in which our work can support our lives as opposed to the other way around. Yeah, I love the Winnicott stuff. We've done some shows actually on him. I don't know much about his work. And it's interesting in terms of parenting that his advice wasn't taken. I think my generation has tried way too hard to be perfect parents, which probably accounts for the screwed up Gen, Gen Z uh, as a consequence of the helicopter parenting. You said you came out of college looking for the perfect job, but it was a very imperfect SEMO. If there are people who are and obviously the idea of a perfect person is absurd but if you've got your act together if you're honest about yourself about your talents about your possibilities is that likely to make your job prospects or maybe not so much your job prospects but your appreciation of work and at a job much more realistic and healthier I definitely think so. You know, I think a level of self-awareness when you understand what you value and what you care about can lead to a lot more fulfillment and contentment. You know, on the other end of the spectrum, we get people that solely make decisions about their careers based on what the market values. Those are people who, for example, just take the most prestigious job or the highest paying job that they're offered. Right. And, you know, with many of the people in my book that were very, quote unquote, successful, it can lead to a place where they get to the top of whatever career ladder they're climbing and realize that they're playing a game that they don't actually want to win 
or they get to a top and are left wondering, is this it? Because they haven't taken the time to invest in other aspects of who they are. So I think the key is to balance those two, to hold what the world values in one hand, what we value in the other hand, and try and find a job or a career that marries the two. The great American critic of capitalism, who unfortunately is no longer with us, David Graeber, wrote about something he called bullshit jobs. I think it, it, it was a best-selling uh, title of one of his books. Are there more bullshit jobs, um, uh, Simo, as this ideology of meaningful work grows? It seems as if most work is really bullshit. Mm. Middle-level stuff, marketing stuff. I mean, maybe our engineering, building stuff is real. But most other stuff is just seems to me to be pretty much bullshit. I do think there is a lot of bloat within corporations. And I think we're starting to see a correction as, you know, just looking in our backyard in Silicon Valley, these tech giants hired like crazy during the pandemic when we lived in a zero interest rate economy and things were going up and to the right. And then, you know, reality kicked in and in the face of economic concerns and the tightening and the potential economic downturn, laid off tens of thousands of employees. I do think that the corporate world of knowledge work creates a lot of bloat and a lot of redundancy. And yet, you know, I'm wondering about what happens next? Is it just laying off all of these people and their livelihoods being so tied to their ability to maintain W-2 employment? What does a perfect labor market look like where people are only doing things that actually add value to the world? I'm not sure any of us know. Yeah, and it's a huge issue. Are you implying at least that maybe Elon Musk isn't such a bad guy in the way he uh, pillaged Twitter in terms of laying so many people off, getting rid of all what in his mind at least were bullshit jobs? Well, I think there's a difference between the tone in which you treat people and how you take care of employees, recognizing that they're humans that also have families and things to pay for, and the idea of being an employer that is really taking a fine line and, and thinking about what is necessary versus what is superfluous within your company. I don't applaud Elon Musk in, in, any, in any way, shape, or form, but I do think it points to an idea that I advocate for in the book, which is a more transactional approach to work. I think many workers are waking up to the fact that employers always treat work transactionally. They hire employees who add value and they fire employees who do not. And I think workers would benefit from being more clear-headed about the transactional nature of their side of the bargain as well. And I think a lot of the labor organizing from the screenwriters in Hollywood to the teachers in Oakland are a reflection of this awakening that first and foremost, this is a contract and workers have power when they band together. Yeah, I like the idea of work as transactional. Uh, whenever anyone asks me, uh, if, if I can give a speech for free, I would say to them, am I a charity organization? You're being paid for your work. Why should I do anything for free for you? Uh, but then I'm a nasty piece of work. Let's talk about how we are indeed going to reclaim life from work. You in your Atlantic piece and in the book, you talk about a 40-year-old character called Josh Epperson. Tell me about Josh and why he is a model for perhaps how we can begin to reclaim our lives from our work. 
Yeah, so Josh's story is interesting. He grew up in project housing in Virginia, went to a community college before transferring to VCU. And it took a little while for him to find his footing. He worked in a few different industries and eventually found a job in an ad agency. And as sort of an outsider with a different perspective, he was of a lot of value. He brought a different take on a lot of the creative projects they were working on and quickly rose up the ranks. Now, it's customary in the United States to trade your expertise or the skills that you've developed for more income. You know, the more we make, the, the trend is that the more people are starting to work and because they can consolidate a lot of that wealth for themselves. But the reason Josh is an interesting character and why I chose to make him the protagonist of this story is because instead of trading his expertise for more income, he chose instead to trade his expertise for more time. Although this may seem like it's such an anomaly, it's actually in line with most of history. The wealthier a country or the wealthier an individual has typically been, the less they work because frankly, they can afford not to. But this trend has been reversed in the United States in the last 40 or so years, where some of the greatest increases in work time can be found among the highest earners, the people who can afford to work less. And what, what does Joe, Joseph do with his time? Parenting, volunteering, playing softball, fishing? I mean, whams if you spend all this extra time watching TV? Yeah, it's a good point. And there was this new research that just came out from UCLA about the optimal amount of free time that we have in the day. You might think about free time as just kind of more is better, but what the researchers found was actually there's danger on both ends of the spectrum. If you have too little free time, you can burn out. It can lead to sickness. It can lead to complications from overwork. But if you have too much free time, it can lead to a feeling of listlessness or depression or create the conditions for extremism to start to brew. And so I do think it's this balance. And, you know, one of the things that I was impressed from Josh is that he really was active in the ways that he spent his leisure time. He is involved in his local community on the board of various nonprofits. He spends a lot of time gardening or in nature or investing in other parts of himself beyond just his worker identity. So why have you spent all his time on the, on the golf course or drinking or chasing women or beating his kids? Is that inappropriate? I, I just don't, I'm not sure I'm convinced by this because Ultimately, you're just making judgments on this particular guy. He was clearly a very decent guy. He'd probably be a very decent guy if he was doing 80-hour weeks. Yeah, I mean, I think this is where the nuance comes in. And it's about finding that middle path. It's about not working too much so that work is all that you do and not having too much leisure so that you don't have a way to contribute to the rest of society. I think there is a very clear distinction in the way that Josh treats his work as more of a means to an end. He very much, you know, works to live as opposed to lives to work. That is just a nice foil, a nice contrast to the norms that American society continually pushes its workers towards. You know, as someone like you who has lived on multiple continents, I'm sure that you can see that there is a, a cross-cultural difference here. There is, although I'm always wary in these points of the conversation, someone will say, well, in Denmark, they do it that way. I mean, America is not Denmark and never will be. I wonder what, whether technology also is responsible 
doing a little bit of research about you, Simo. We have these platforms. Uh, uh, your website advertises your career. Uh, Twitter advertises your career. LinkedIn advertises your career. I'm not blaming you. We all play the same game. How do we get out of that? How do we stop presenting ourselves to the world as if um, our work is everything? It defines us. Yeah, it certainly is the norm. And I think the culture of social media doesn't help where we are parading our professional accomplishments around for the world to see. One thing I've noticed recently is the line between, say, a professional social network and a social network that is primarily about our personal lives is continuing to blur. You know, when people post their baby photos on LinkedIn and their job updates on Instagram, it is a furthering of this culture of work centricity where, for example, at the, the cocktail party, the first question we ask each other is, what do you do? And it's only amplified online when we're constantly looking for every bio or every post as a way to self-promote. But, but, but everyone is so, in the culture perhaps you and I are part of, everyone's so competitive. The, the next wave of these cocktail parties, people will say, what don't you do? Hmm. And every Instagram and Twitter and LinkedIn feed will be dominated by people showing off how they're not working. Isn't that the problem? Yeah, I think it's a it's a valid point. I think the alternative is to find realms of our lives where there are different metrics that matter. You know, certainly the office or the workplace has one value system where we're measured by the rubric of how much money we make or our particular job title. But one of the risks of not having other containers for our life, other communities that reinforce our different identities is that that becomes internalized. You know, I definitely found this myself as I left corporate America to work for myself. I was the worst manager that I ever had. I thought it was, you know, my boss or the company pushing me to work long hours, but it was actually this internalized idea that my productivity was the measure of my self-worth. And so to people who were in a similar position to me, I'd advocate for finding different realms of your life where people could care less about what you do to make money, where people maybe value you based on how you show up as a member of the recreational sports team that you play for, or as a member of your parents' association for your children. Yeah, I think there's a sort of a, a latent communitarianism somehow lurking out there, which is defining your theory. You, you talk about us realizing, waking up, acknowledging the fact that job is an economic contract. So you clearly think that there is value in understanding that element in contractual terms. Should we be thinking of life in a contractual sense too? Should we be thinking that we can or can't quantify life? Hmm. It's a good question. You know, I think a lot of there's a growing body of research from the OECD and others that are looking to quantify things like measuring happiness, happiness, happiness well shows on that. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, I don't know, it's a little bit outside of my area of expertise, but 
I am wary to try and quantify every element of my life. I'm reminded that I spoke with a psychologist who often sees these sort of ambitious type A strivers. And she says, why don't you try and do things outside of work? And they say, okay, I'm going to sign up for an Ironman or I'm going to read 52 books this year. And in many ways, they just convert their leisure into another form of work that can be quantified and showed up. So if we can't measure happiness, how do we determine it? We just feel it? I do think it is something that is more of an art than a science and maybe something that can be used by people in our lives to serve as a mirror to reflect back on how we feel. I definitely am cautious to give too much prescriptive advice because I think it's different strokes for different folks. Although, some... yeah, but that's all very well, but then your, 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 your critique is prescriptive. So you can't have your prescriptions and eat them. Eat them too. Well, I, this is all to say that I think some people do what they love for work and other people do what they have to so that they can do what they love when they're not working. And neither is more noble. I think the scales are sort of tipped in our culture right now to very much revere the people whose identities and their jobs neatly aligned. And I see part of my work is to try and rebalance the scales and say, you know, if your job is a more of a means to an end, that's nothing to worry about. Well, I'm about to allow you, uh, Simo, to reclaim your life from work. But finally, we haven't talked about AI. You, you like like me are in San Francisco on the edge of Silicon Valley. AI is the rage here. It's a reality for better or worse. Done lots of shows on the automation of work. One with the anthropologist James Sussman, who I think fetishizes pre-industrial tribal society, imagining what work looks like in a post-job society. Are you excited in the way in which AI might get rid of all these jobs? Is that a, something that we should be celebrating? Um, and are you someone who's sympathetic, for example, to the guaranteed minimum wage ideology? I'm hesitant to be a full techno-optimist when it comes to the idea of AI. You know, I think on the whole, if you look back, and you know, as James has quantified in his work as well, Technological progress can lead to higher well-being for society, but there is a lot of collateral damage in the interim. And especially with something like AI, I believe a small subset of workers will be able to wield these tools to be more productive than ever. But I think a lot of people are going to get left behind. And that's the moment we're in right now, where the researchers and the policymakers and the practitioners really have to grapple with how we're going to deal with the society that has a further gap between the haves and the have-nots. Well, Simone, I'm going to let you go. What are you going to do the rest of the afternoon? I hope you're not going to work. I hope you don't have any more interviews. I don't have any more. No, I'm going to frolic in the field and leap for joy. Well, enjoy the frolicking. Thanks for having me on.